and welcome to the Post Party Project. My name is Amy Heinrich and I am your host. Join me as we chat all things postpartum, celebrating the highs and supporting you through the lows. Everything pregnancy and birth is just such an exciting time, but often chats about postpartum experiences get missed or overlooked because everything's about the baby, which we are also totally here for. But I'm here to hear you and hold you, figuratively speaking, and to listen to your experience. Think of this podcast as your safe space to share, vent, cry, laugh, and know that you're not alone. Now, let's get into it. Hello, welcome back to the show. Um, So I'm just recording this intro outside because Ivy's been a little bit sick over the weekend, so she's not going to daycare this morning. Um, Just letting you know in case you hear any rogue coughs or screams or anything like that while I'm doing this intro. (laughs) Um, But today's chat is on sleep. I know that sleep can be a super sensitive topic. For me, it was one of the biggest things that I worried about even before I was pregnant, like I was a nine hour a night sleeper and I knew that having a baby would disrupt that. So whenever I thought about having a baby, that was always the one thing that was on my mind. I think I would like naively ask people with newborns or babies how their sleep was going. And now I know how triggering that question can be. I think it was because I wanted to prepare myself for what I would experience one day. And yeah, I honestly think that I was just really optimistic with it all, um, which is good, I think, to be optimistic. Um, But honestly, now I know how triggering it can be for new mothers. Um, Just because, yeah, everything that I went through, I found I put so much pressure on it and, and to get it right that when I would be asked about it, I felt kind of like a failure because it wasn't going how I wanted it to go or how I'd heard of some of these other mums going and I really I think beat myself up over it for example um I found myself getting so upset one day when my partner Jared came home from the shops and he was telling me that he'd been speaking to the lady at the butcher and she said that her baby had slept 12 hours a night from the age of four weeks (laughs) I honestly got so upset and it led to such a massive argument between Jared and I because, yeah, I found it so triggering. Like, like, God, good on you. Like, good on you that your baby sleeps that long. Like, I just <laughs> I felt so angry and annoyed by it. And that was where I was at in a state of sleep deprivation. And I put so much pressure on myself. And honestly, now I, I don't think I'd be as affected. Well, I'm definitely not affected if that's someone's situation now. I'm so happy for you if your baby's sleeping that much. But at the time when I was in the thick of it, it really triggered me. Um, I honestly, yeah, would just get so upset by it. Um, especially because I'd read so much, I, it, I felt like I'd read absolutely everything I could about baby sleep and how to prepare for it. And then at two months, three months, four months, 12 months, I still didn't, still didn't have a baby that was sleeping through the night. I kept going back and forth and like reading and obsessing over different sleep pages. And I wanted to be there for Ivy and support her with whatever she needed but I also wanted us to sleep better. So I was trying to find a nice balance in the right kind of the right things to do for us. Um, Yeah. Like, so while I was pregnant, I got all the things ready for Ivy's sleep environment, everything that all the pages suggest, such as pitch black room, white noise, perfect temperature. But 
Ivy just would not sleep unless she was touching me, which I have since found out is so normal. (laughs) I just put all this pressure on myself. (laughs) Our babies need us for everything, so they're so vulnerable if we're not with them, which totally makes sense why she needed to touch me all the time. And the more I accepted this, the better that I felt, and it has been a very long journey. When Ivy was about 11 months, we were really struggling. I honestly felt that for us, the eight-month sleep regression lasted about four months. Um, Ivy and I were sleeping in the king bed together and Jared was on a mattress on the floor, mostly because Ivy would choose to sleep sideways. Um, and then if she rolled in the night, I didn't want her to hit either of us and then like wake herself up and need to be resettled back to sleep. Um She also was going to sleep at about 6.30 or 7 p.m. at night and then she would wake up every 20 to 30 minutes after that until about 9 p.m. Then I'd go to bed with her and she'd still wake up pretty much every two hours from there um, and she'd wake up for feeds. So I'd be breastfeeding her and it felt like I was doing full feeds still at that time of night. Jad was struggling to go to work on like no sleep and I was struggling so hard as well. Also, I had a goal to breastfeed until I was Ivy was around 12 months and I just could not see how I would ever stop breastfeeding with these overnight feeds, which is also so fine and so normal. But yeah, this is just my experience and how I felt with everything. So anyway, I found a few gentle and holistic sleep pages on Instagram and that is where I found the lovely Claire, who is who I speak with today. Um, I really started consuming her content and I just loved what she was about. I'd recently been toying with the idea of a floor mattress. Um, One of my friends had suggested it and talked about how easy it was to just lay down next to your little one and then when they fell asleep, you just kind of sneak away. Um, And Claire did a post about it the same week that I was considering a a floor bed and I was like, oh, this lady, she, she knows what I'm all about. So I ended up contacting Claire and we booked in to do the two weeks of sleep support, um, which each day we would document everything that we do with Ivy throughout her day routine. So like what she would eat, what time she'd wake up, when I'd put her down for naps. Um, yeah, all those kind of things, like what we would do. And then Claire would Uh, make comments um, either just small tweaks like some of the tweaks for example were to wake Ivy up after her morning nap so keep the morning nap short and then have a longer afternoon nap and to be honest it felt so weird and just so wrong (laughs) to wake up a baby that sleeps in the morning that you then have to wake them up all you want your baby to do is sleep and then you're told to wake them up but anyway I followed Claire's advice and it freaking worked (laughs) Ivy started having longer afternoon naps which is what we wanted so she wouldn't get super overtired and then have those like false starts going into her night sleep um So it wasn't straight away with the changes. It was gradual over the two weeks, which honestly I still didn't expect. I, when I booked with Claire, I thought this is going to be the one that she can't fix. Like I just don't even have any idea because I'd read so much. I think that I, I thought that I was, I knew what I was doing. So I was like, I'm already doing all the things. How is this even going to help? But oh my God, it helped. The smallest tweaks changed everything for us. And also one of the massive things were um, understanding baby temperament. So Claire and I speak about this today, but Ivy's always been a really cuddly, touchy baby. So as a baby, everyone would always say, oh my God, she's just like a little koala. She cuddles into you. She just, the girl loves a cuddle. So once I realized that that's actually a type of, 
temperament that a baby can have, it just made so much sense. So Ivy needs so much more touch and cuddle and comfort from us before we go to bed, even like rough and tumble play. So like Ivy loves to be chased up and down the hallway and stuff like that. Like the more we stimulate her in the sense of touch and play, she is then able to more comfortably go to sleep happier and yeah, more comfortably go to sleep. So it was just crazy. Within the two weeks, so more towards the end of the two weeks, Ivy was then going down at 6.30 p.m. and then sleeping mostly through until about 5 a.m. and then she'd wake up for a feed and then usually would go back to sleep for another hour, which was incredible. I honestly didn't even think it was possible. Oh, still, I'm still in shock to this day <laughs> um, because we were giving her more food and all of her more milk feeds and all of that, offering so much more throughout the day. Her nights just became the time to sleep, which totally makes sense. Um, yeah, so honestly, though, it hasn't stayed like that. Sleep is still goes up and down, and that's something that Claire and I speak about in this episode. Um, we, yeah, so Ivy still... For example, if she's sick or she's had a really big day at daycare and hasn't had a long daycare nap, she will still do those false starts and wake up every half an hour for a bit. Um, Some days lately, she's even skipped a nap, which is just terrifying (laughs) because it's so rough. (laughs) She just doesn't go straight to sleep if she's missed a nap. It's just a nightmare. So yeah, we've had like so many ups and downs still throughout this process, but I feel that I'm in such a good space mentally after speaking with Claire and I totally 100% know what I can do to move in the right direction. I've been given so so many like PDFs and I've got so many tools now to work through those bad nights with Ivy. Um, And honestly, Claire is so great. She'll never push you to do something that you don't want to do. So for example, if I wanted Ivy to fall asleep independently without me touching her or cuddling her, there were steps that we were going to go through to get to that. But I just never felt that I wanted to do that. So I guess some people probably class that as a bad habit of sleep. But honestly, I just feel they're only little for so such a short amount of time. And I'm just going to take these night cuddles while I can. And overall, she is sleeping so much better. So I could not thank Claire enough. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to give you guys a little rundown on our journey before we get into today's episode with Claire. Um, As always, I would be so grateful if you are enjoying these episodes to jump onto Apple iTunes and leave me a review um, and also subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a friend if you feel like it resonates. Um, Yeah, let's get into it. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one. Thank you for joining me today, Claire. Now, if there was anyone I'd want to have on to chat about sleep, it's you because you helped us so much with Ivy. So I'm so excited to get into our chat. And yeah, I hope it will help other people. I'm sure you have so much knowledge to share. So thank you. You are so welcome. Pumped to be here and really lovely to chat to you again after helping with Ivy's sleep. And so exciting that you've started podcasting. I love it. Yay. Um, So yeah, tell us a little bit about you and your family. My family. Yes. So there's me, Claire, me. I'm married to Josh and we were high school sweethearts. So we've been together since we're 14. We got married when we were 19, like absolute lunatics and we're now 31. So it's been quite the journey. And we have two little boys, um, Oscar, who is three, um, turning four in December and Theo, who is two. So they're 18 months apart, which was lots of fun. And that's pretty much us. Um, And yeah, 
and I work as a sleep, like a holistic sleep consultant. So spend all my days chatting to families about sleep and how we can optimize sleep. And I love it. It's the best. Oh, so good. Cause I, um, yeah, you're called the gentle sleep coach. Is that right? Yes. And, um, so yeah, what is it exactly that you do and your, could you explain your sleep support, um, approach? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh gosh, it's been such a journey. I had a really hard time with Oscar's sleep, like a really, really, really hard time. And back then, like Instagram was just not what it is today. So, um, I had followed like, I think three different sleep pages was all I could find at the time, um, all promoting a a gentle approach. Um, And it was just horrific. Like when we worked with them, it was, um, yeah, just not a fun time. Um, And it was really hard because when you book something like that, you think it it is what it is. Um, So that basically just led to a journey of like lots of reading, basically lots of research for myself. And then I discovered, oh, wow, like you can become a sleep consultant. And I became like mildly obsessed (laughs) with sleep as a direct result of that. Um, And so I went on to study um, to become a sleep consultant whilst um, having the boyos. So I did a, a certification right after I'd had Oscar and had gone through this journey that turned out to not be something that was very helpful. So then I kind of put it on ice um, and then I had Theo. And again, the same thing. I was like, oh gosh, there's just, it's really hard to find, um, I guess, support that aligned with what I felt like my parenting values were, which is um, responsive and attachment focused. So I did a certification. Um, it was a little bit better, but it wasn't incredible. Um, but it was enough that I felt like, okay, yes, I can do this. Since then, I've done another two, specifically in baby-led and holistic sleep support, which I then discovered was a thing. And that's probably where I'd say um, my niche is. So when I work with families, what I want to do is um, find out what their goals are. Um, learn about their baby, their baby's um, unique temperament and sleep requirements, their needs, and kind of create a strategy that supports them. So that doesn't include crying it out. It doesn't even necessarily even have to include moving them out of the family bed if they don't want it to. Um, It's about optimizing pretty much everything that we can control and making strategies for the tricky things and um, working back from things that might not be working, but in a way that kind of feels good for the whole family and is responsive um, to baby as well as part of the process is probably the best way to describe it. So no drowsy but awake and anything Mm. crazy like that. There's no pop them in their room and leave them for X amount of time. Um, It's basically just winding back as we go. Yeah, and I think that's what stood out um, about you to me because you share so much on social media about your approach as well. And I love that you really focus on the baby in particular. Like there's no one yeah. size fits all. And you like, mm-hmm. when I spoke to you, you just like really listened to me about how Ivy was as a baby. And I was like, oh, that's like the main thing. And you were just so respectful mm-hmm. of what I wanted as well. So I think that yeah. I felt so heard with you. Oh, thanks. But yeah, it was, um, it's been shocking to me because um, I would say Oscar and Theo are on complete different ends of the scale when it comes to sleep needs. Oscar was a really high sleep needs baby and would always do these giant naps and huge stretches of sleep overnight. And Theo was the total opposite. Like kid does not need a lot, a lot of sleep. Um, so I think having that experience like on a personal level and being like, oh my gosh, like I have two children so close together that could not be more opposite um, was super empowering because a lot of these things you learn about practically or no, in theory, but I think until you've had it happen Mm. practically where you're like, oh gosh, like 
when Oscar was eight months old, he was doing two, two hour naps and Thea is eight months old and doing like 15 minute nap and an hour and a half nap. And yeah, navigating that was really helpful. I think um, for me to work through that as well. Yeah. Um, hundred percent. And I think like everything that you just said before, when I was pregnant, I kind of went into it going, like I followed so many different sleep pages, which I yeah. ended up overwhelming myself and yeah. listening to so many podcasts as well. And I thought it sounded like if you were just so like, if you just had, did all the right things and it was structured, your yeah. baby would literally just sleep. So like, I was like, like you know what, I'm going to get, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh yeah, this is what you do. And then it's going to be perfect. I'm like, I didn't take into account that like babies need so much more than just like a dark room and white noise and like the perfect environment and I was like so when it happened and then I'd like read things like like oh like you know maybe if she just cries for like a few more minutes like it'll be okay and I remember like her being about three or four months and leaving her for like only a couple of minutes I could never leave her for long but just being like oh maybe she'll just like because because I felt like I was too responsive and I was like maybe if I just leave her for a minute she'll just like and then she just got so worked up and I was like I literally was crying after I got her after two minutes and I was like what the hell like I can't do this like how, how do people like like I have a friend who said once that um she would put headphones in and then like I've heard people do that as well and I'm like that just literally like breaks me to my heart that that you have to that some people choose to do that um and I think um it's really tricky because like you would know like sleep deprivation it's awful like you can feel so desperate um and a lot of the time all the advice is kind of like a bit of an echo chamber like oh you know they just need this exact routine and you need to just close the door and like leave them to it. So you go to a mother's group and that's what they're all doing. You go on Instagram and that's what it's filled with. And it can be hard because it, it does leave you to feel like, oh gosh, like that's what I've got to do. Even the direct marketing that you get from like the tracking apps you used in pregnancy, um, they start sending you sleep advice that is just absolute rubbish, but it, it's overwhelming and yeah. so it really can like it's your only option I think sometimes yeah yeah exactly and I just was like oh maybe I just have to leave her for like one more minute and then Mm -hmm. when I did that time I was like I actually am never doing this again and then I started like (laughs) I started and then you get so conflicted because like you said you are so sleep deprived and then you're Mm -hmm. like okay like I need to be so responsive like I don't want to scar her or give her any sort of trauma like I'm going to be here for a 24 7 but then like then you can start to struggle so it's just such a yeah, just yeah, plays with your middle ground. Yeah. yeah, so that's why when I found you, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> like Claire exists, like it exists yes. as a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I describe it as that. Hey, like the middle ground um, for people who obviously don't want to cry it out, obviously can't just wait it out either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The middle there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who is pregnant right now and they mm-hmm. are wanting to know what they can do, like, because I look back now as well and I'm like, I wish I just didn't even worry about it. Like, I wish I just went into oh, newborn yeah. life being like, I'm just here to love my baby. That's all I need yeah. to do right now. Like, yeah. but hindsight, <laughs> you just want to be prepared as a first time mum, I think. But exactly. in your opinion, is there anything that you can do? No, pretty much. <laughs> Good. <Yeah. laughs> no, no, there, there is. There totally is. But I think the first thing is to to basically shelf all of your expectations of what it, it should look like. And I remember having this myself um, with Theo based off Oscar. When I had Oscar, I didn't even know what an awake window was. I'd never heard of awake times. I'd never heard of anything at all. I didn't even know that I had to put him to sleep. I know that sounds so stupid, but I just thought they just fell asleep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which was a learning curve but then I think having the opposite 
experience and having a heap of information and a heap of opinions can also sometimes be a bit overwhelming too, because a lot of the, I guess, generic advice we'll hear doesn't really align with what's happening with newborns. So what I always suggest to people when they're having a newborn is learn about attachment and how babies attach, which is through the senses in the first 12 months of their life. So they are hardwired to want to see you, smell you, hear you, taste you, touch you, which is why they want to be on you all the time. And that's normal. Um, And we need to actually support that as well. That's why contact naps, they sleep like a dream, but the second you put them in the bassinet, they're awake within 20 minutes. I honestly think that understanding that takes a lot of pressure off parents when they know, actually know, um, I don't have to force independence sleep and I'm not doing something wrong and it's okay to actually just sit here and hold them if it's doable or get a baby carrier um, if you need to have your hands free. Um, So I think that's really important. Um, Understanding um, that days and nights can get confusing (laughs) can be helpful too because it can be a thing because newborns don't have an established circadian rhythm. It's kind of developing in the first 12 weeks of their life. Um, it's very common to get day-night confusion where they're so sleepy in the day and it's so lovely. We just sit on the lounge and cuddle them and they're asleep for huge periods of time, but then they're awake all through the night. I think understanding day-night confusion can be helpful and um, kind of thinking about um, how we can help that. So broad uh, exposure to broad spectrum sunlight, um, napping them in a bright room as opposed to a dark room, um, waking them up if they've been asleep for more than maybe two to three hours so they can have some awake time, lots of eye contact with them in their awake times, and then keeping nights kind of chill, so red based lights, um, low stimulation, things like that is just a very simple way to support that. But we don't need to worry about um, feeding them on a schedule. We don't need to worry about um, self-settling. We don't need to worry about a routine at all. Following their cues with an average awake time in mind can totally help, but it's just not realistic for lots of babies to follow like a schedule. And I think knowing that as well as understanding attachment um, can really help to take so much pressure off the whole fourth trimester. Um, yeah, which is always my go-to advice is burn your routines. Definitely an eye on day-night confusion and average awake times, but more than that, your baby's cues and learn Mm -hmm. why they're doing what they're doing, which is for attachment purposes and also their literal survival is dependent on being in close proximity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing is that I think people expect like newborns to, or some people to wake up like every two or three hours overnight for a feed or whatever, but it can be one hour, 20 minutes. Like, (laughs) Yeah, they especially um, in those first couple of weeks where they're really establishing milk supply, you could get cluster feeding for hours on end. All of those things I think nobody tells you about. Mm. So when they happen, you can feel like, oh my gosh, like this is not good. But no, they really can. They can be so wakeful um, overnight to start with. Some do really long stretches as well. Um, Both ends of the scale are normal though. And I think that's important. Um, And pretty much all we want to do is just make sure we're establishing milk supply, um, connecting with them, loving them. And honestly, the rest of it almost always organically falls into place as they get a little bit older and their body clock kind of starts to kick in a bit more too. Yeah, definitely. I know I put so much pressure on myself to get her used to being in a bassinet or used to being yeah. in a pot as well. And I'm like, but she would never sleep in there for longer than no. like 10 minutes. And yeah. now I'm like, when I have my second, like when we go for number two, I'm like, carrier, just 24 seven. And I was, again, like a lot of working this out is yes, obviously in a professional level, I've studied it. I understand, but practically speaking, um, I literally only had Theo sleep in the carrier for like pretty much actually a huge portion of his life. Um, 
almost the entirety of the first four months, his naps were just in the carrier because I had an 18-month-old and I would have died <laughs> if I was trying to put him in the flight. It was also COVID lockdown. So I was like, what am I going to do with my 18-month-old who um, hadn't had any screen time until then? So I tried to introduce it and he just did not care. Like he would not sit and watch it. And I was like, I can't spend like hours trying to get this baby to sleep. Um, and even thereafter, like I always ended up doing like two of his three naps on the go because I had Oscar and it was shocking to me the fact that it just made my life so much easier and had zero impact on his ability to sleep well. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really helped because he got good stretches in, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Getting a carrier and just enjoying life a little, little bit yeah. more. I think, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so when should we seek help for our newborn? Like what's not normal in terms of sleep? What's not normal? So with newborns, um, excessive um, discomfort and restlessness. So we all, obviously it's normal for newborns to have um periods where they're crying for a while but if you get a gut instinct that it's not normal and they have big bouts of crying spells like definitely chatting to a medical team to see if there's anything going on we might commonly hear you know of reflux and colic and things like that these are often markers for something underlying that isn't always kind of discovered so actually kind of getting to the root cause can be really helpful um things like snoring and mouth breathing we always want to look into as well um especially if we have very disrupted sleep um and feeding difficulties will often come with that as well so if we have significant nipple trauma, um, if we've got latch issues, um, solving those things often um, has a big impact on how baby sleeps as well. Um, so looking into those things if we notice them, which is obviously easier said than done sometimes, but finding like some really good key people can be beneficial for that. I know we had a rough journey um, with working through that as well because both boys had um, oral tires, like really bad ones, and we won't even get into my <laughs> Um, but seeking the right support because sometimes a lot of the symptoms come up when it comes to sleep and it could be that baby's got a poor latch or something like that so they're sucking in lots of air and then they're just so uncomfortable to lay on their back um, and can't get burps up so they're so wakeful and they're screaming in pain and arching around and things like that so the root cause more so than I guess the symptom can be helpful to think about but yeah those excessive periods of um, restlessness or lots of upset inability to lay flat um vomiting and lots of it, um, snoring and mouth breathing and um, feeding problems would be the things we want to really look out for um, in the newborn season as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we mentioned a little bit at the start about baby temperament. Um, mm. Could you run us through, like, why it's so important to understand oh. your baby's temperament? Yes. So baby's temperament um, is, like, oh, the most freeing thing um, to understand, I swear. So, um, there's uh, three main temperament types and they're made up of nine different temperament traits. We want to think about the traits kind of like a spectrum, I guess, or a scale. Um, and baby might be um, really high intensity and really low regularity, for example. But the three main temperament types um, are an easygoing baby. So the unicorn, basically very chill, relaxed, go with the flow, not really stressed about much. Um, a slow to warm baby, which might be described as the, the children who I guess when you picture um, like a shy child, what would come into mind. Um, they don't do great with change. They struggle 
in new environments. They really need a lot of support to kind of ease into things. Um, and then also a highly sensitive baby. Um, highly sensitive baby, like everything is very overwhelming for them. Very um, small things can be really upsetting. So um, like a tag on the back of their top, for example, might be from a sensory perspective, just too much. And they're so dysregulated. They're often the babies that um, feed so frequently because they're just seeking lots of down regulation um, and everything feels really tricky for them and with them as well. Um, parents almost always know when they have a highly sensitive baby because, yeah, bright lights, things that are too loud, different textures, going to different places um, is really difficult and sleep is often very hard. So they're the babies that really struggle to sleep independently, really struggle with settling and, and any kind of even minor change um, could be very difficult for them. So obviously, like when we're thinking about sleep, if we have an easygoing baby um, and a highly sensitive baby, experiences are going to be worlds apart. Um, and I think what can happen a lot of the time is um, we talk to people or people who tend to give sleep advice often have easygoing babies because they're the babies that will often never struggle with sleep at all. So when you rock up to mother's group, they have all the answers because their baby is sleeping like a dream. Um, and it can feel like they've like unlocked this secret code to sleep when actually no, their baby is just such a chill temperament. It almost wouldn't have mattered what they did. Um, they would have done well. So if they're the babies that will naturally soothe themselves and they might wake up at the end of a sleep cycle and do a little look and like suck a thumb and go back to sleep. Um, and they start to sleep through naturally because that's what they kind of need. So if you're somebody who has a highly sensitive baby and you're talking to somebody with an easygoing baby, it can make you feel very quickly like, oh gosh, like I've done something terribly wrong. Like I need to do exactly what this person did to get that outcome. And because you have a highly sensitive baby, if you go to do that, so like let's say they just put their baby down drowsy, but awake on, they might say, well, you know, oh, they grizzled for a couple of minutes and then they fell asleep. So you're like, okay, I'm going to try that. You do your good wind down, you pop them down drowsy, but awake and they scream like they're dying and they don't stop because they're highly intensity and they're highly persistent as opposed to low intensity and not a lot of persistence there. And um, your experience looks worlds different to your friends. And I think that that can be helpful to understand because so much of the time we can just feel like we've done the wrong thing or that there's something wrong with our baby. But no, actually, we're just not supporting their unique temperament and what they kind of need. So for the highly sensitive baby, it might be very gradual transitions over a really long period of time with lots of support. It could look like floor beds as opposed to cots because maybe the cot itself is even too overwhelming for them, for example. Um, and a lot of that plays into the day as well. Like, um, like I have Oscar who's highly sensitive and I know I really struggled because I'd go to social settings, say, for example, and he would just be plastered to my side and he would not engage with anyone or anything. Um, if I went on a play date, like one-on-one, -on -one, he'd be fine. He'd go off and he'd play the whole entire time. He'd come back a lot. But as long as I was visible, he was comfortable. But as soon as we took him out of like a safe bubble, I guess, he did not thrive. So we'd go to the park with all the friends he was okay with playing with in our house, say one-on-one, -on -one, and he would just melt down and he'd be crying and he'd be sitting on me. And because he didn't go to daycare, he was the only <laughs> one of them, I would always be like, oh my gosh, like he's antisocial, like something is wrong. We'd go to like dance classes, dance classes, you know, like rock and rhyme, I guess this thing, like do the little parachute and they all dance underneath it, things like that. <laughs> And he would just be crying, um, <laughs> not participating at all. And I would try to like force him to do things. And it was just a disaster. And it took me literally until doing 
the third sleep certification to really learn about temperament. And I was like, oh my gosh, there is nothing wrong with him. He is just a highly sensitive person. Um, and I needed to really change my approach and really be slow. And as soon as I did, like he flourished. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of understanding temperament. It's that, well, there's this thing called the goodness of fit. And that's to do with, I guess, um, the way that we adjust to support what our baby actually needs rather than forcing them to do what we think that they should. Um, and that's basically what the power of understanding temperament does, mm-hmm. um, which is awesome. Yeah. And I like that was like one of the points where I contacted you because you did a whole post on floor beds. And I was like in the moment of thinking like maybe we need a floor bed because I was trying to get her so badly into a cot because I thought that was right. But Ivy's like such a cuddly baby. She always like was always feeding to sleep and then cuddling to sleep. And even now the way I get her to sleep is I like lay next to her on her floor bed and she Mm -hmm. needs to put her um, hand down my sleeves. Like she falls asleep with her arms like attached to into me um which I'm so (laughs) which I'm so totally fine for because like because of what we did with you like and learning how to schedule her day like when she wakes up in the night or whatever she usually just like because she's drowsy and she's like it's right the right time she'll still just go back to sleep but um if she does wake up I'm like for me I honestly don't mind now because of knowing everything I've learned through you I'm like I'm happy just to give her a cuddle and she'll fall straight back to sleep because she knows that I'm there so yeah I found that that was one of the most important things to learn about the baby temperament yes and like it's so it's so fascinating as well because again like a lot of the generic um advice I guess that we hear about babies is they need they will be sleeping through by the time they're six months whatever um but all the research we have completely contradicts that and if we look into the research it's actually more common for like even 18 month olds to be waking overnight um we're expecting night wakes until age two and all of the studies into I guess traditional sleep training um over a, a long period of time basically shows that there's no difference at all. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. although it can feel like a, a temporary fix, it's it's often just that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is good to know, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and people also often talk about getting your baby to self-settle. <laughs> um, oh what does this mean? And, yeah, what are your <laughs> thoughts on this? Yes. Oh, gosh, I could talk about this for ages because I think Self-settling and self-soothing are often used very interchangeably in the sleep world. And I know for me, like, I guess because I am a sleep page, all that comes up in my explore feed is just baby sleep and, like, mum posts and things like that. And, oh, if I had a dollar for every time I saw a a post about how to teach a baby to self-soothe, now we know babies do not have the neurological capacity to self-soothe. Like, that is very well proven. I have a heap of posts about it actually on the page if people are interested, but there's decades of research that very confidently concludes babies cannot down escalate themselves when they are dysregulated which is what self-soothing is now self-settling is simply the process of falling to sleep independently um so a lot of this comes down to developmental readiness age and temperament again so if you have a very easygoing baby who is naturally a soother um they will potentially right from birth just fall asleep with a dummy on their own or even without a dummy, just on their own. We didn't really do anything. They just never really had a big reaction to the process of going to sleep. So it was very chill. Um, If you have a highly sensitive baby and even a slow to warm baby, um, working on self-settling can be excessively difficult and something that they never do on their own, especially if your baby is naturally a signaler. And that is they 
ask for help and they really call out for that support when they need it. Um, and with that, a lot of the time, um, you know, you put them down and you do all the same things that the easygoing baby who is a natural soother has done and your outcome is completely different and they need lots of support to get to sleep. Now, supporting baby to sleep, there is no evidence to suggest that that will cause any problems. Now, of course, you can kind of form associations with the way that baby expects to go to sleep and wants to go to sleep, just like how we do with ourselves. So like, I don't know, I'm a weirdo and I always want to sleep with a pillow on my head, on my literal head. Um, and I always have to have white noise on, even though I'm 31 years old. And um, that's my sleep association. It's every human being has them. Um, sometimes they can become a little problematic and there's some things that aren't working that you need to wind back from but that doesn't necessarily mean your baby has to self-settle and the journey of self-settling will not necessarily look like we just put them down and they fall asleep a lot of the time it's those gradual steps back and slowly I guess heroing new um, associations or new cues um, as we wind back from things that are unsustainable. So I guess like feeding to sleep is a very common um, example of something that may stop working, may not, but possibly can. Um, so layering in some things that you can begin to wind back to can just help shift from that sleep association. Um, but yeah, gosh, there's a lot of pressure around self-settling though. And I think the lack of understanding around temperament and just developmental readiness, I think, comes into play. And that's a lot. There's so much about sleep that you can't control. And a baby's ability to calmly fall asleep is really one of them. And so focusing more on how do I create calm? How do I co-regulate with them, knowing they can't soothe themselves when they're dysregulated? And how do I wind back from things that aren't working are, are probably the key things to focus on, if that's something we want, as opposed to, you know, just pop them in their cot and do X, Y, Z. So yeah, creating calm, rituals, wind downs, cues. Yeah, yeah. That, um, yeah, all your advice around feeding to sleep like really helped with me as well because mm -hmm. I was quite happy to feed to sleep for like yeah. the first part of a year because it was so easy. If we were yeah. out, I could just do it. It was just oh, like the best, right? Yeah, like to me it just totally worked. And that's what, like I did honestly try for a little bit to do the, what is it? feed, play, sleep. I oh, did try that for a bit, yeah. but it just didn't work. Like in the end, I'd be like trying to rock her or doing any other techniques. And in the end, I was like, you know what, if I just like feed her, she would just she did out. Like, yeah. And I'm yeah. like, I don't, don't want to, I don't want to spend an hour trying to do this where it takes me okay. two seconds to put her down if I just feed yeah. her to sleep. So that yeah. was, was easy for us. But as it approached the one year mark and I spoke to you that I wanted to gradually um, stop night feeds or, mm. um, like I was happy to still do it if, if she needed it. But after we adjusted her day schedule, she just honestly started sleeping just longer stretches and didn't yeah. need it as well. So yeah. like for me, it was just understanding, um, yeah, through you about what she needed during the day and it yeah. just adjust, adjusted our nights so easily. Like I honestly thought she was going to have to cry. Yeah. Like, I, I'd actually, <laughs> like I'd actually read that, you know, um, it's she might just cry for like a few weeks if I don't give her a night feed that's what I, I thought was going to happen but there were no tears at all like honestly yeah. no tears and so much of it like I would say like 90 percent is just what's happening in the day sensory needs um optimizing things like exposure to sunlight and activity level and connection and wind downs and like maybe 10% might be the actual settling process itself but I would say like probably 80% of our clients we never really need 
to intentionally wind back with unless they have a highly persistent baby who really persists with wanting one thing. (laughs) More often than not, it looks like what you're describing where they kind of just naturally start to just do better um, with some small tweaks, which is great. It's definitely not a magical cure for sleep, which I think some people think it is. Like, oh, gosh, if my baby can self-settle, they'll sleep so much better. But so many children I work with have self-settled from day dot and are sleeping really poorly. And other people who never work on self-settling and we adjust different things and their baby sleeps like a dream, it's definitely not um, a magical cure. I think what it comes down to is working out why are the wakes actually there and what's baby kind of communicating through them. And sometimes they might be communicating that they want that form of comfort, but more often than not, something's off that we just need to adjust yeah I can't remember what we classified Ivy as when we were speaking but I know because she's not super sensitive she's quite chilled but she always has to touch so I think she was more highly sensory yeah she's probably yeah so sensory needs are super important as well um and everybody has a unique sensory system and different things that elicit different responses um and we need different amounts of input um and for some people um let's say things like physical touch or um something like that will be very calming and organizing and thus if you're a sensory seeker you might want big doses of that but for Mm. other people um maybe that exact same touch actually doesn't really work with their nervous system and it kind of frustrates them and annoys them a little bit that's me josh is like my husband um will like try to give me a cuddle and if i'm stressed i'm like do not touch me like i do not want to be touched don't come near me give me space um and that's not a calming thing or organizing thing for me but for some people if they're very anxious and overwhelmed a cuddle is going to be the very best thing and kind of the same thing with babies so yeah she loved yeah <laughs> she yeah loved. she's just like since she's she was born like good. always and everyone has always commented like how much she's like a cuddly baby at daycare now <laughs> they're like she's so happy to cuddle with anyone like wants to be held all the time and so, so for me good. like I um like through so we actually co-slept quite a bit at the start as well because yeah. and I honestly thought like if the environment's right, like I'll put her in the bassinet and she'll be fine. And I don't think she ever slept a night in her bassinet. Right. We're, yeah, we're just like, uh, like she slept so well, like just right next to me, touching me at all times. Yeah. And how I got the most sleep as well. And I, like, I sleep like I just don't even move in my sleep. I've always been like that. So I was never worried about no. like squishing her or anything. Um, no. But yeah, what are your thoughts on co-sleeping? I know so many parents experience uh, guilt yeah. around it. So what's your approach yeah. on this? Oh gosh, look, we have been co-sleeping since the beginning of time. <laughs> like, that is how we all got here um, was through co-sleeping. If we if we think about it from an attachment perspective, um, that close sensory proximity is what helps uh, humans to feel safe and secure. And we need to feel safe and secure to sleep well because sleep is a really vulnerable state. Um, yeah, so from that perspective, it makes sense. Um, it often can really help make night wakes more manageable because you don't have to get up and traipse to a chair and feed them or rock them and put them back down. You can just roll over and give them a cuddle. Um, yeah, I definitely, I'm all for co-sleeping if it's going to work. Um, I'm, I totally understand if it doesn't. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a lot of misinformation around co-sleeping. Um, and I think we're coming a long way. Like there's um, safe co-sleeping guidelines now, like on the red nose 
uh, website. And I think the research showed that like 87% of families will co-sleep at one stage. Um, and I think where co-sleeping gets dangerous is a lot of that's reactionary, right? So maybe baby's sick and they've been up all night and you fall asleep with them on a lounge or you just have a wakeful baby and you're so depleted. So you bring them into bed, but you haven't set up a safe space um, to do that. And I think we don't empower anybody by just not talking about it being an option and, and how to do it safely. And yeah, I think that that is coming around now and is shown by a lot of the recommendations that are coming out is that actually, yeah, an acknowledgement that it's really normal and almost everyone does it for some reason it's become so taboo. Um, but we know from the research that actually it's the, the minority who won't co-sleep at some point. So I think having some good information around it is so important and it's just a natural, normal way for all of us to sleep. Like I know I can't sleep well on my own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when we think about it from like an evolutionary perspective, like babies rely on us for their literal survival. So of course they want to be um, in that close sensory proximity because they need to be to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And honestly, I would feel so stressed when like, cause around six months we started getting Ivy to sleep overnight in her cot. And I don't think I slept for those like however many months because I was so used to having her right next to me that yeah. I would wake up every hour and check the monitor and zoom in to see if she was breathing. Oh, still. Like, <laughs> I so get it. Like I was, I was the worst at moving the boys into their own room and we needed to like we started waking Oscar up um and with Theo we moved into a house that he couldn't literally fit in but I was like a hot mess um <laughs> but yeah probably helpful to know as well that by definition co-sleeping is just having baby within arm's reach so room sharing technically yeah. is co-sleeping as well mm. um which has so many benefits in terms of reduction in SIDS risks and all that kind of good stuff. And so if we do want to bed share, because I like yeah. looked into this a lot as well, what is the safest way to do it? Yeah, so safest way to do it, obviously checking off all the basics. So there is a lot of research, and again, it depends what country you're in, but generally speaking, like a breastfeeding mother, um, we obviously want to make sure there's no alcohol, drugs, smoking, um, mum's not sick. Um, or, or any kind of um, prescription medication or otherwise. But um, practically speaking, a floor bed is going to be the safest option. Um, removing blankets and pillows, um, sleeping in a cuddle curl position, which is, I guess, where you, if you kind of picture your body as a C lying on the side with baby kind of up next to you, is the safest position to sleep in. And um, we want to make sure we dress them lightly. So not in like down their top ratings basically because of course your body warmth is there as well um and yeah you want to have baby not between um the two parents just next to mum basically um and they're what the recommendations are if you go onto um there's actually so many great websites that you can look at you can google um the safe sleep seven safe sleep seven i think that's what it's called um, or if we go onto Red Nose Australia and look up safe co-sleeping, um, there's diagrams and everything where you can look at what that looks like practically. Um, you can have a blanket that kind of, if you think about it, like a triangle. Um, so baby's out of the triangle, but the triangle kind of comes up on you. Um, you can also get like adult sleep sacks now, <laughs> which is really cool if you know that's something you want to do long-term. Um, so they're the, the basics of it. Um, and again, if you're ever feeling like unwell or um, really, really tired or anything like that potentially considering even um popping um if you're a bed sharing family even popping like a, a baby their own kind of mattress kind of 
I guess side carded, but like floor, like a giant family floor bed. So they've got their own space is probably a bit of a safer option too. Mm. And is there a trick to getting them to sleep in their bassinet or cot if that's what you want to do as well? Yes, there is. So when we think about making those transitions, we want to think again about how we can help them to feel safe and secure in the place they're sleeping because everybody's vulnerable when they're sleeping we're all unconscious um so unless we feel very comfortable and safe and secure in our sleep space we won't be able to sleep well um so we can do that practically just by exposing baby to it in the day so like lots of time playing in the cot or the bassinet um in the lead up to using it um games like peekaboo can be great reading books for example um we want to make it smell really nice and familiar as well so you might want to sleep with the cot sheet for a few nights or um like let's say you're moving from one cot to another using the same um, cot sheet. We want to use kind of the same sleep sack they were sleeping in before as well. So it smells really nice and familiar. Um, and check your warmth because if you've gone from bed sharing into a cot and um, baby's lost a softer mattress, the surrounding blankets, and also your body warmth. So the chances of them waking quite cool are higher, especially if you've been dressing them down as we should um, when we're bed sharing. So um, checking your room temperature and making sure you dress them appropriately for that, taking in into consideration those other things as well and then honestly from there it's just lots of time and patience is a big adjustment and again depending on temperament you might find it super easy or you might find it really hard um and both are normal so just being patient and supporting baby through the process and it doesn't have to be all or nothing um so sometimes I think people think you know if bed sharing is not working, they have to go right to the cot. Actually, maybe they only go to the cot at the start of the night and then you'll find bed sharing in the second half when you're more tired. Like that's okay too. There's no rules. Yeah. And that's what works for us now as well. Like um, we put Ivy down on her, her floor mattress and because a lot of people have said to me, like, my kid would not do that. Like they'd get up and run around their room and stuff. But because Ivy's so like set, highly sensory, she, as soon as she wakes up, she will always call out to us. She's never got up yeah. in her life and played. She's always like, where's my mom? Like she'll call out. And yeah. then, um, yeah, so that's never been a problem for us. So, and because it's so cold at the moment, if she wakes up at like 3am or something, I just go in there with my pillow and I've got like my own little personal rug that it just fits yes. me. And so then I just sleep next to her for the last couple of hours. And yeah. pretty much as soon as she sees me or as soon as she puts her arm back into my sleeve, she falls asleep it's within fine. a second. And oh. I could go back to bed, but by the time that's happened, I'm like, I'm already there. So it's so handy yeah. having the floor mattress. Exactly. So like there's no rules. It's just yeah. what's going to work best. And I think sometimes the intimidation is thinking that, oh gosh, like if I put them in the cot, then I have to put them back into the cot every single time, but you don't. And they're not. I don't know. I think sometimes we don't give baby credit for how clever they are. Like they're not going to be confused. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think like there's so much pressure as well from like other, like I, I don't know, maybe older generations are like, oh, you'll be bed sharing for until they're 10 or whatever. Like, and you just, yeah. So, it's I, so like, now that I've got like an older child, like Oscar's turning four, I'm like, oh, I just wanted to like have a nightmare and come up no. in a cuddle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny how it changes. Hey. Mm, yeah. Um, so let's chat about regressions um what are they and when can we expect them okay regressions b topic so like the only actual I guess proper regression is the four-month sleep regression that's the only time there's a change to like the architecture of baby sleep and that's basically when their sleep cycles mature become more adult-like and they basically just shorten so that's where you go from perhaps you had like a newborn that was doing like six hour stretches to all of a sudden they're waking like every like hour and a half to two hours like all through the night so that's the only one that's an actual change to sleep itself um and that typically occurs around four months it can happen early 
earlier. It can happen later within kind of like a two-month window, I guess, um, of that. But that's the only one that's a permanent change. The rest are purely developmental. So there's so much happening neurologically and developmentally for baby. Um, I would say like in the first couple of years of their life, um, and there's these times where there's kind of like, I guess, like a lot happening all at once. And that's what creates what we know to be the common sleep regression. So that's the six month, eight to 10, 12, 18 month, 24 month. Now that's not to say they're the only times that sleep is going to regress or that they are the times sleep will regress. They're just the common times where there's like, I guess, a lot happening all at once that leads to a snowball effect of regressions with sleep. Um, I like to remind people that whenever we see a regression with sleep, it's because something else is progressing. So it's always because things are actually developmentally um, advancing. So it's more of a progression than a regression. Um, with most of them that are developmental, which is all of them but the four month, they should pass on their own within a maximum of a month. Um, if not, there's probably something else going on. And again, keeping in mind, we can get regressions for a number of different things like separation anxiety. You can get regressions with sleep when baby starts daycare um, because of that separation potentially and just trying something new. If there's a new sibling, when they move to a new room, if you go on a holiday, if they get sick. Um, so any significant change can spark it as well. And that's why it's important to remember that sleep isn't linear. And I think sometimes people think, you know, I'm going to book um, sleep support and they're never going to have a problem with sleep ever again. But we, what we know to be true is there's just so much that we can't control with sleep and it's always going to ebb and flow. It's always going to be getting better. And then all of a sudden something happens and it feels like it goes backwards. And that's normal um, for babies, but knowing how to kind of manage them I guess is what can help them feel a little less overwhelming mm, and I think that's what I've kind of learned now that Ivy's around 17 months that I don't feel as much pressure on myself like I used yeah. to be like oh no this is where we are now we're going to be stuck in this bad sleep right because for yeah. some reason I feel like hers always last a couple of months like I feel like they right. always last a bit longer than usual yeah but like we've just come out of the other side of um, her dropping to one nap and she's gone back to sleeping like well again. And I'm Nothing. like, I didn't like, I didn't change anything. Like I, she needed a little bit more support, a little bit more, um, a few more cuddles. But I knew, like, I just kept reminding myself that I'm not, I haven't changed anything. Like it'll come no, good. Again, it can so. come good. And that's, it is like almost always it comes into line. And sometimes I have um, clients I've worked with previously who hit a regression be like, oh my gosh, like, I think I need more help. Like this is going on. And I'm always like, just give it time. And I would say like nine times out of 10, probably even more, a vast majority of the time it does that. It just settles itself back down. Yeah, like the first couple of days it happens, I start going like, oh, maybe like she went to bed too early or maybe she went to bed yeah. too late or her nap wasn't the right length. And then I'm like, oh, no, wait, it'll even out. And it then does. I just take away the pressure of thinking, overthinking it. And Exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes what happens is we panic that something needs to change. So we change things and those changes can sometimes actually backfire and cause like more disruption. But almost always, if everything else seems fine and it just seem to come out of the blue like that it's almost always developmental and that regularly just passes on its own but doing things practically like just practicing lots of new skills in the day giving them lots of time to play freely um and really increasing connection especially once we're past like that eight month mark it's almost always separation anxiety in some way shape or form so practically like things like co-bathing extra long wind downs lots of physical touch um to just kind of fill i guess the love cup up a little bit um it's just something really practically that will benefit pretty much every regression 
Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing that stressed me out a lot when Ivy was younger before I saw you was catnapping because oh, there's gosh. so many things on Instagram that oh, is like how to <laughs> stop your baby from catnapping and I literally was like what am I doing wrong obviously yeah. I'm doing something wrong and the pressure I'd put on myself to stop her <sighs> catnapping and yeah. even at night time like there was so many times that Jared was like Amy relax just bring her out where like have her sleep on your chest and we'll watch a movie and I was like no she has to sleep in her cot like why did and I just relax and watch the movie with her. (laughs) I know, I get it. But it's tricky because catnapping really is developmentally normal Mm. um, until around six to seven months on average. And that is just because the brain is so clever at micromanaging the sleep that it needs. And all the naps are there for is to relieve sleep pressure. Um, So basically sleep pressure, how it works is you wake up in the morning, you have no sleep pressure because of course we've had a full night of sleep. And as the day goes on, there's this hormone um, that starts to build that makes you sleepy basically. And that's the building of sleep pressure. We need to build sleep pressure so we get good stretches of sleep overnight. Um, But all naps are there for is to relieve that sleep pressure a little bit because babies can't handle much of it. Um, Until we get to a point where babies' um, sleep biorhythms are developed enough and their awake time is actually high enough to merit a long nap, we will get cat naps. Um, And there's nothing inherently wrong with them. Um, If you have a baby that's cat napping and waking happy um, and they're fine in their wait time, it's almost always not an issue. Um, And what will naturally happen is that as they get older, their wait time stretch and all of a sudden we put them down, the brain goes, oh, actually, we're awake for a bit longer than we are tired now. We need more than a short sleep. Um, And it's like it flicks the switch and comes into line on its own. Um, In saying that, there there are definitely lower sleep needs babies who will always catnap. And again, there's not a huge amount you can do about that. Um, And you can get catnaps from other disruptions, but I would say it's fairly rare for it to not kind of, especially if you have a parent that's aware of what's going on, often they're doing every every everything they can to support longer stretches it's just baby's not ready and then it's like they flick a switch and they do they just sleep that little bit longer which is really lovely I get it it's exhausting both my boys have been catnappers but gosh I killed myself with Oscar <laughs> trying to get him to sleep longer stretches and then yeah one day like I did nothing different at all and he yeah. just took a long nap and I was like wait what and then you spent so much time trying to like rethink of all the things you did but you didn't do anything they were just at that point, ready for it. Um, so taking some pressure off, I think, can really help as well. And there's nothing wrong. That's why, like, if you Google four-month-old naps, you'll see that, like, three to five is probably the average range. And if you have a baby that naturally consolidates their sleep, they might have three naps. But if you don't, five is still just as normal as three. Um, and I think sometimes we can get hung up on the lower end being the golden standard. But it's not. There's nothing. There's no better way, you know, like, a three nap schedule with consolidated naps is no better than a five nap schedule with shorter sleeps. They're both normal. Yeah. yeah. I remember like speaking to people and they'd be like, oh, like, it must, like you can get so much done when she naps, like people referring <laughs> to doing a lot while they nap. And I'm like, well, she'll probably nap for 20 minutes. Like how much can you no. do in 20 minutes? Yeah, no, like, can't even yeah. drink a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. So like we were always like more of a five nap kind of day. Like I just yeah. was so like aware of the awake times. So I'd just be like, okay, then she naps again, like in an hour and a half or whatever, yeah. 20 minutes or <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, so night feeds. How long do they happen for? And if someone wants to move away from them, what can they do? Mm, Night feeds, it's important to remember, like, they are so normal, like, especially in the first year and beyond, but definitely in the first year. Um, There is literally no evidence whatsoever that that, um, backs 
dropping feeds at a specific age. I know we hear a lot about, you know, at six months, they shouldn't eat night feeds anymore. Absolute load of rubbish. Like there's nothing to back that whatsoever. Um, what I always talk to clients about is what the averages might look like. And again, those ranges are really normal um, or broad as well. So like, let's say you have a six month old that's feeding every two to three hours in the day. Um, it'd be really normal for them to potentially wake every three hours overnight as well. If you have a six month old that naturally does longer stretches between their feeds in the day and they're going four hours between milk feeds, they're probably the baby that's not going to need as much overnight. Like that's fine. Um, a lot of it's going to come down to their daytime calories. Um, so I always talk to clients about the ranges of normal, but then more so than that, like how are they feeling? Because um, a lot of the time, like mum has a really good gut instinct around if baby's actually hungry, if they're not, if it's comfort, if it's not, and also what the daytime is looking like. Um, and if we're getting feeds overnight and really awesome feeds in the day and solids are going well, it's probably normal. Um, if you're getting no milk feeds in the day or baby's not, like I've had a client recently who their baby was ref refusing all milk feeds until 3 p.m. but then feeding all through the night. Obviously, those calories are a little disjointed and we needed to kind of push them back into the day. Um, but there's usually some red flags when there's too many overnight, like no interest in solids whatsoever um, at an age where it should be established. So eight to nine months, say, for example, um, or just refusing all milk feeds <laughs> for most of the day um, or very small, small ones. Um, and that's when we might want to kind of shuffle it back. Or if mum or dad feel like, you know, the feeds they're facilitating are excessive and they get that gut instinct, they don't need them. Um, but moving away from feeding overnight is really hard because a lot of the time what we're doing is we're taking away the quickest and easiest thing. We have to get baby back to sleep. So whatever we do will be harder, longer and more difficult, which is something I always tell clients about, which is not a fun conversation to have. But I think the reality of that's important because unless you feel very strongly that this is the right thing and at the right time, it's very hard to do unless you have a very easygoing baby um, because part of the process really is creating those new patterns and normals and supporting baby through the change. Um, so kind of thinking about like, okay, how many feeds do I have now? How many do I feel like is appropriate? So maybe I'm um, feeding one, supporting one. If you have multiple wakes overnight is helpful. So rather than feeding every hour, you feed every two or rather than feeding every two hours, you feed every four, whatever you feel like is a good fit. And then when we're thinking about comfort, um, there's no rules. So I would almost just view it as anything other than feeding. So can we rock them to sleep, cuddle them to sleep, bounce them to sleep? It's easier with toddlers because you can talk to them. You can read books about weaning. We can do role play. But with younger babies, all that we want to focus on is co-regulating with them and be normal for them to have a hard time with such a big change. Um, and our job would be to support their emotions and to help them to kind of soothe and comfort into going back to sleep, knowing that they can't do that on their own. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that was Lots like a to do it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, honestly, your approach with us was so good. Like, because we, um, like looking at how Ivy ate during the day, like I know yeah. you, you suggested it, us adding so much more protein and she yeah. had more feeds throughout the day. And then at night time, like we did the same thing. Like, I think I was feeding her like a few times through the night still. But then, yeah, like the first feed, um, we just like, I just settled her. And then yeah. I remember I was like, for the first week or so, then she just like would naturally sleep through and then she'd wake yeah. up at four or five. And I'm like, 
so shocked she didn't even like wake or need it and then eventually like we completely pushed it out and I ended up like I kind of like naturally weaned her from there because yeah like my milk supply just kind of dropped and it honestly that's kind of what I wanted to do anyway like that felt really right for us and it was such a natural progression that she just like she was just never upset and I'm just so happy the way it all worked out yeah Yeah. and that's the thing it's got to be at a pace you're comfortable with um, and that works with your baby so it doesn't have to be and again it doesn't have to be you know in three days we need to cut these feeds like it's okay to be slow and gradual with the process yeah, well. yeah I was honestly so shocked like I think yeah. I was just writing in our little form like what the hell is she sleeping <laughs> like it doesn't make sense like she woke up and she wasn't it. even upset or like yeah. yeah and then even the 5 a.m one like I would feel like she didn't really need it for a bit and yeah. then slowly just like gradually weaning that out as well and then you know, yeah. just being fine like <laughs> yeah. yeah I think about gradually is like magic yeah um okay so daycare how do we manage oh. sleep and our expectations around oh, daycare gosh and I think you just nailed it it's managing expectations almost always um there is nothing we can control with daycare. <laughs> yeah. really they can go so rogue sometimes. <laughs> they, go, they can go so rogue. I have a client at the moment who has a two-year-old and yesterday daycare gave them a three and a half hour nap and the baby was up, toddler was up until like 10. And I was oh like, I go over the baby because they slept for like three and a half hours. So some daycares are awesome and you can have conversations with them about your baby's sleep needs and what that looks like. A vast majority of the time it goes nowhere and they do whatever anyway. Mm-hmm. So I always talk to clients about, Okay, think about what you can control again, which is absolutely nothing in the day. So think about what you can do on your home days and your back end. So like when baby gets home, if they haven't slept, they are probably exhausted. So perhaps they need an extra nap if that's age appropriate, or perhaps they need an early bedtime. Um, If they've had a huge amount of sleep, which happens, let's go the opposite way. And actually, maybe you're going to have late bedtime tonight. And I know that's not ideal, um, but there's nothing else we can control with it I think so much of the stress with daycare though is wanting to control something that we cannot um so thinking about um managing expectations it's okay if they don't sleep great it's okay if they sleep too much um yes it might cause difficulties for that night but there's some things that we can do to support it by adjusting bedtimes either direction offering extra naps things like that um the go-to with daycare as well is just to remember that um it's a long time that baby's been apart for you from you and a lot of the time what it means is they've got like two hours with you until they go to sleep. Um, So bedtime can sometimes be really tough on daycare days because of just connection. Um, So thinking about ways to increase connection before bedtime is super important. I'm a big fan of co-bathing. I think it's just a very lazy way (laughs) to be able to do it. Like just jump in the bath or the shower with them. Um, Lots of eye contact, lots of um, physical touch, depending on age. If you have a toddler, maybe that looks like getting in um, involved in what they're playing with in the later half of the day as well and mainly just bridging that connection need more so than stressing about what sleep they have or haven't had is probably the best thing you can do um, and if you find it's really problematic um, chat to your daycare and see what you can do so like can you explain to them that hey you gave my two-year-old three hours of sleep today and they didn't go to bed until 11 or they had a split night and they were up for two hours at 1am or if they're really exhausted like can we talk to them about can we get an extra nap in a daycare is there any way they can try to resettle them for one of their sleeps something like that but if it doesn't happen not to worry and often it gets easier the longer they're there as well and the more used to it they become 
Yeah, place. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ivy's just about to move up to the toddler room and they're yeah. like, they're preparing her for it. So she's doing like little stints over there just to practice. Uh, and um, she's, they said that she's sleeping better because she watches all the toddlers have a little nap yeah. at the same time. Oh, so God. yeah, she's been terrible in the baby room, but now she's finally having naps in she's the toddler driving. room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's going well. Very good. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the biggest concerns that you hear from parents who might be considering sleep support? Oh yeah, almost always. I I cannot tell you how many DMs I get. Hey Claire, I really need help with sleep. I've just worked with a sleep consultant who said they were gentle, but it turned out we did cry it out. I think chatting to people about where they studied can be helpful. Because I know from my own personal experience, the first two places I studied with whilst advertised as gentle and at the time I just didn't have the depth of knowledge that I have now to be able to decipher the difference I fully thought that I was going to get from them what I got from the last two who are opposite ends of the spectrum so I think actually talking to people if you're going to work with them about where they studied or just asking like what does your support look like like will we start off with something I'm comfortable with, but two days in when it doesn't work, are you going to suggest control crying is a very good question to ask because a lot of the time that's the thing. Um, people will start with, oh, yeah, like we do a full spectrum of approaches or, yes, lots of our approaches are gentle. But then what happens is because gentle is actually slow because it's a gradual reduction, when you get to day two or three and it's taking a little bit longer or you're struggling like that you'll have it suggested <laughs> to do control crying and I think that that's people's experience um and I think that that's the big thing that people are worried about so having really clear conversations um and your sleep consultant should be so open with you about those things um absolutely I um, and I think the other thing is thinking that um they're not going to be heard um and that's something that I've seen a lot uh, or I get a lot is like oh gosh are you just going to tell me what to do and not listen to what I actually want to do or, or need um and that's a big one for me because that was my experience as well is I had all these things that I was like I don't want to do this I'm not comfortable with this and all of them were disregarded and they're like oh well if you're not going to be consistent you're not worth working on it and I was like no I am willing to be consistent I just want him to stay in my room that's all like that doesn't impact how consistent I'm being. It just yeah. means he's sleeping with me instead of over yeah. there. Um, and I think, again, having really honest conversations about like what do you see my role as in this is important. Um, and if somebody asks me that, I'll always say, well, you're the expert and um, this is your journey, not mine. And I think that's a big difference because it's tricky with sleep because I guess a lot of sleep consultants, especially more traditional ones, probably view their clients' outcomes as their personal success. Um and I think that that can mean that their experience is different. Whereas for me, like I, I never guarantee what baby's going to do or what a result will look like because I'm not going to do that. So I can't say to a family who wants to continue bed sharing and feed every two hours overnight that their baby's going to sleep through. Um, and if they're happy for their baby to feed overnight and bed share and that's their goal, brilliant. That's my goal. But I think that that's where it comes unstuck. So having those honest conversations, so like, Will you suggest cry it out? What will it look like if we get to day three and we see no change? And what's my role in this? Um, we'll alleviate a lot of those questions and just ask them where they studied. We'll reveal a plethora about what they'll do. And then go onto Instagram and look up the, pl the places they say, because they all have Instagram pages. 
and scroll for a minute and you'll 100% see mm. <laughs> the underlying tone of what they look like, which reveals a lot as well, I think. Mm. Yeah, and that's what I loved about you as well. Like you kind of said to us, like, what is the end goal with this? And because Ivy was waking up like every half hour after a bedtime from 7, like until 10, it was just hectic. So that was one of the things I wanted to stop. I wanted mm-hmm. her to have just longer periods of sleep. And even you said, like, do I want her to be able to just like eventually be able to fall asleep on her own or was I happy laying there with her? And I've always been happy laying there with her and you were just so supportive of that and that hasn't changed how well she sleeps. Like that's just for me, like I love to cuddle her as well. So that just works for us. So And she sleeps well now as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a big difference. Like I'd never suggest to somebody who's happy to support their baby that they need to wind back and I'd never even talk to them about it. Um, But, again, I think that comes down to the vein of the support that you get as well. So that's important, just having those conversations, I think. And I think sometimes people feel like they can't ask questions, but, like, I love it when clients ask questions. Like I always prefer when people slide into DMs and they're like, this is what it looks like, this is what I want to do, what will, how, Um, because it's, it's helpful to know what their expectations are and it's good to be able to tell them because a lot of the time as well I've had clients sign up and they've been like oh this isn't working like can we can we do control crying and I'll be like no (laughs) and like send them somewhere else I I wish I had Yeah, yeah. So I think conversations are helpful both ways. Mm. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so yeah. much for joining me today, Claire. Um, how can people find you on social media? Oh, yes. Look, I'm most active on Instagram, let's be real. So it's at The Gentle Sleep Coach. Um, website is thegentlesleepcoach.com. You can check us out over there. Slide into DMs, flick us an email, um, all of the above. Always love connecting with people. Oh, awesome. I feel like we could still chat about a million things. I I hope we've covered like enough to help (laughs) anyone today. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so good. Um, Yeah, it's been so lovely having you on. Thank you so much. I loved it. It was great. Awesome. Thank you for listening. What did you guys think of today's chat? I would love it if you could let me know over on my Instagram. I'm at the postpartum project. And if you want to share your postpartum experience, you can hit me up on Instagram or you can send me an email, thepostpartyproject at gmail.com. Also, just as I sign off, I'm going to let you guys know that I still have a 10% discount for my other business, Bev's Buzz Break, where I make low caffeine coffee options for pre and breastfeeding mums or anyone who's wanting to consume less coffee throughout the day so it also could be if you've got hormonal imbalances you have anxiety trouble getting to sleep at night um, reducing your caffeine intake can help with that so you can use code ppp at checkout and the website is bevsbuzzbreak.com.au thanks guys